everybody and welcome back to the Movie Scramble podcast. I am your host Thomas and today I am joined by John. John, how the devil are you? Bored, Thomas. I am bored. Not so much with watching films and messing about, but it's just this is just <laughs> it's becoming intolerable this lockdown. It seems to be never ending. Are you coping? Well, I've watched 10 Heroes of Films and 19 out of 20 Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th films, so I don't know if coping is the right way to put it. Just I've watched um, a lot of horror franchises recently. It's taken its toll on me to the point I'm like, how much good stuff could I have watched in that time? I've got an Alfred Hitchcock box set sitting that I bought in 2007. I've watched about three films from it and I think it's films I'd already, I'd already, I'd already seen. But no, I'll sit and rewatch horror franchises because uh, not well. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it. I'm rediscovering a lot of these films, which is quite good. I've watched a few on your recommendations and watched many. I caught a fairly decent movie and obviously the, the Wishmaster series as well. It's been a few dodgy ones, but that's just watching movies in general, let's face it. Yeah, and plus, these kind of films as well, it's good because they're just mindless. You can take your mind off what's happening. You don't have to think too much about it. They're a nice escape. And if it wasn't for his binging on his crazy multi-sequel horror franchises, how would this podcast even be happening just now? Mm-hmm. So, for everybody that's tuning in today, you will have noticed that in your download queue is indeed a Hellraiser special part two. Now, for those that tuned in first time, me and John went and covered the first three movies in the franchise. And for those of you that are familiar with it, you'll know there's ten. So, <laughs> I have recently reviewed them all and they are currently making their way onto the site over the course of this current week. Time as podcast is out, they're probably already published. Please go and check them out. But after doing the first three, we've, we thought we could leave it at that because they're known as the Heroes of Trilogy, even though there's ten. They're the kind of three main films. But why? There's another seven to go over. So why not cover the next three in the series? And that's what this podcast is for. John, I believe you've watched these films for the first time, haven't you? It's true, yes. I am a virgin to the, the Hellraiser franchise in its entirety so yes i have now watched up to six and i have four left to do which i fully intend to watch over the next week or so give myself i wanted to give myself a little breathing space in between but yep seven through ten is a definite it's not even a possibility it's a definite you just have to come it's your fault it's my fault i take i take total blame for this to be fair and (laughs) what you gotta do what you gotta do in this case. But, like I said, we're going to discuss Heroes 4, 5, and 6 in the franchise. So, let's start with Heroes 4, also known as Heroes Bloodline. I am forever. 500 years ago, a mystical box was created. The key that unlocked the door to absolute evil. Oh my god. From one generation to the next, the descendants of its creator have been cursed. Kill them. Now, the evil must be stopped to close the gates of hell forever. Welcome 
bloodline. <laughs> this is a film that if you're watching for the first time, or even if you just look it up, you think to yourself, who directed it? Clive Barker in the first one, but he didn't return for the second one, he didn't have much involvement with the third one. And you will see a name that might strike fear into your heart, because Hellraiser Bloodline is directed by none other than Alan Smithy. John, can you explain to our listeners who might not know who Alan Smithy is, who indeed this director is? The infamous Alan Smithy is an alias for a director who wishes his name to be taken off of the credits from a film. Now, this can be for a number of reasons, but it's usually because the control of the film is taken away from the director at some stage and he wasn't happy with the end result. So rather than having no director, the Directors Guild of America came up with this Alan Smithy moniker. They stuck on the film so that it shows it's actually directed by somebody. But it's usually an indication of a production that not all went well on. Indeed, uh, most famously, you've got Alien 3, where David Fincher more or less disowned the movie and takes nothing to do with it. He claims it isn't his film. His name is still on that movie, though. But here was the force. It is Alan Smith. The film is indeed directed by Kevin Yeager, a special effects artist who's famous for his work on the Nightmare on the Elm Street movies and the Child's Play franchise. He had his name successfully removed from this movie, and he didn't do any reshoots. They were done by a relatively unknown director at the time called Joe Chappelle, Joe Chappelle went on to become quite famous by being a co-executive producer and director of The Wire, indeed directing some very infamous and famous episodes of that show, which is considered one of the greatest of all times. So he went on to do some not bad things. The movie has a cast you probably haven't really seen since, but it does have a little landmark because it's the first feature film role of Adam Scott, who you may recognise these days from Parts and Recreation. Hellraiser Bloodline is... A very ambitious film on paper. If you look at that as a blurb, you may laugh at the fact that it's set in space. You've got Hellraiser, very basic, stripped down, kind of haunted house style movie. Then they go to hell. Then hell comes to earth. And now hell goes to space. And that's before Event Horizon. We can have precursor almost a little influence for that movie. But yeah, you've basically got three different timelines in this movie, all telling the story of Le Merchant family who was originally responsible for creating the puzzle box that opens the doorway to hell. The movie is set in the 1700s, it's set in the present day 1996, and it's also set in the year in the year 2127, and follows the descendants of the toy maker and his quest to eventually close the gates of hell once and for all. Obviously, hell and indeed Pinhead, with Doug Bradley returning in the role, isn't happy with this idea, and well, basically wants to keep the doors of hell open. If that plot seems a little convoluted it's because it is and this is a movie that was originally intended to be three different movies as Clyde Barker originally pitched with Peter Atkins the screenwriter and he wanted each movie to be a different timepiece. It's all crammed in here and well some things of this movie work some other things don't. I have my own thoughts on it but I've seen this movie many many times. John watching it for the first time what was your thoughts? There was the initial thought of Hellraiser in space and the connotations that that brings up. Once you get past that and actually get into the the story itself, it does work in terms of the different timelines of the story. I was quite interested to see how they were going to do it, obviously flitting between the future and the past. I liked, gave you 
the, the origins of Hellraiser itself in terms of the box, in terms of the people around it and everything. Obviously, it had to introduce a new character in the timeline in the past because Pinhead, as we had found out in one of the previous movies, was a British army officer. So therefore, he couldn't really be in the period before that as well. Mind you, they probably could have done that and come up with some sort of idea about how to do it. But no, they had to introduce a new character as well. It was a slightly different take on it. I quite liked the idea that it was a toy maker that had to come up with the box and the box was used in a ritual to get a demon from hell onto earth and contain it and obviously rule it through the box. I thought that was cracking. It was a really good idea. It was executed really well as well. I thought the everything about that whole period was very good as well. And then what you find is it goes from the past into present day, and that bit doesn't really work at all. There's obviously a continuity line between the three different storylines in that the main character timeline. So it's the same guy, different parts, different hairstyles, obviously. One one is wearing a wig, one is normal, and then he's got shaved head in, in the future because everybody's got shaved heads in the future, apparently. It's just the way it is, with a, a wee nod back to Alien 3 there. Elements that were set in space didn't initially work. They kicked off the film, and there's some pretty dodgy CG effects with a robot that opens up the cube to begin with, which... Uh, didn't age particularly, let's face it. But if you let these things detract from your enjoyment, you're basically watching the wrong film, as far as I'm concerned. You really have to just invest in it and just go, yep, I'm just going with that. What were your thoughts going back and seeing it again, on obviously with a, a critical eye, with the thought that, right, I'm going, to have to, I'm going to review this film. Did you look at it in a slightly different way, or did you just enjoy it as much as you've enjoyed it in previous occasions? No, to be fair, I did have a kind of more critical eye over it, whereas this is a movie I've seen multiple times. I had it in DVD years ago, and every so often I would just put on the heroes of films I'd had, and at that point it was only the first four, because the other ones were quite hard to get, and mm-hmm. I would just kind of watch them on a loop at times, basically, because I was a massive fan. Going back and watching it now, I've always been more critical in terms of how the story was flowing. I think the stuff set in um, 1700s in France is excellent. It's a bit different. It's a real interesting origin that it presents. The stuff in the future even has its own little unique spin on things. And you say that the robot is a bit silly. And the idea that you're using the robot to summon Pinhead. And you've got the Marines that come into it. It's a bit, <laughs> bit space-happy slasher at that point. But I really felt the film dragged in the present day. Didn't think the characters were that interesting to support the movie and keep it ticking over. The, the modern day ones, that is... And even though, as you say, you've got Bruce Ramsey playing three different characters from his bloodline, his least interesting incarnation was the present day one. And you had this kind of pointless plot, really, involving his family, where his wife suspects him having an affair... It doesn't really kind of add anything to the plot because it, it hints that Angelique, the, the demon from the past, there's a kind of sexual element in there that's always existed in the franchise and it's really kind of hidden in plain sight this time because she's this beautiful woman who's very seductive as opposed to this man with pins in his head that's ripping people apart. <laughs> but the scenes with her and Pinhead are quite interesting. 
although again you could tell there was stuff of big cuts they were supposed to have a lot more of a sexually tense but violent relationship and that was stripped back and didn't really what was left didn't really add much some of the special effects were really that's what I'm looking for here um, typical of the time it was like let's have a, a creature dog type thing just because we can and uh, yeah <laughs> I, I, I do like this film I do like it but after reading so much about it as well in preparation for this podcast and preparation for my review doing, doing the research it just mm-hmm. seems like a missed opportunity. If I look at the film, it could have been this epic like, opera, almost. The chances of the studio funding that was very unlikely to begin with. However, to try and... Yeah, it, it was a missed opportunity, in my opinion. Yeah, there was an awful lot of talk about the film when it was being made because it seemed that once they'd actually put a final cut together, the studio didn't like it because... There wasn't enough pinhead in it, and he wasn't in it early enough. So that was part of the reshoots and part of the reason why it became an Alan Smithy film in the first place. They did seem to miss an opportunity. I think they could two pretty decent films out of this if they'd ignored the sort of middle part and done a whole film set in the past and a whole film set in the future. Yeah, that would have worked pretty well because then you've got all of your budget just concentrated on one. And you think about the fact that you're having to do three different entirely different setups, which would make a big difference. It would, I think, it would probably really work very well. Now, Doug Bradley himself has said that this wasn't a particularly enjoyable experience for him. He called it the production from hell, <laughs> which is quite interesting. Obviously, lots of people get ill. There was people fired. There was the cinematographer. He was chucked out so was a lot of the cast in terms of the art department and things like that so it was a trouble production right from the start and then obviously there was all the post-production elements that were kind of stitched together to make a hybrid film not exactly what people were really wanting when they started out on this process and unfortunately it does show because it does feel a wee bit disjointed it doesn't flow particularly well and the scare of things that we've seen before. Having said that, there is one scene which is set in the present day, which is horrific. I won't go into it in any detail, but it obviously does involve a chain and a spike, but <laughs> most of them do anyway, so we're on pretty safe ground there. That one was quite effective, and it's one of these ones you go, oh, oh, right. Ugh, that was a bit nasty. But apart from that, it was a bit samey, unfortunately which is not what you would expect from a Hellraiser film, especially one that still has Clive Barker's name on it. It's very sanitised in a lot of ways to, to try and give it that. And I felt this was the same with the Hellraiser 3, when they tried to get it as an American makeover. And what was special about it was kind of stripped away to become a genetic 90s horror movie. Mm. And going back to the, the present day stuff both in agreement it's probably the weakest part of the movie when you, <laughs> you find the space stuff but the, the silly stuff it's really not well it is but it's the, the flatness of the present day stuff just doesn't work it's almost like it was there just to try and tie into the third movie's ending where mm-hmm. the main character Joey daddies the box and cut the concrete of a new building that's been designed and obviously yep. that box then exists in this movie and the foundations and design of the the, the design of the building does look like the box in many ways. However, that's to do with the architect being 
Lena Shant's descendant, although Americanized now mm-hmm. is uh, Merchant, John John Merchant. Yep. And it's almost like, okay, you've tried to tie this into the third one by retconning what actually happened. And you've tied it in by breaking the link. It's, it's really strangely done. And don't want to go out too much spoilers about the ending of this movie, but it was almost like the studio was, was saying, okay, we're done. We're done yeah. now. You've had the final Friday. You've had Freddy's dead. Now we can just put a, a pin, so to speak, in Hellraiser <laughs> and move on. But obviously that wouldn't be the case, as we'll go on to it in a minute. But would you recommend the movie overall? As a curio piece, yes, I would recommend the movie just because there's a certain tie-in with the previous films for completists, yeah, definitely. For somebody just watching this on its own, it won't make a hell of a lot of sense. So for those people, I wouldn't recommend it. But it's an enjoyable film. It's just not as enjoyable as the previous ones, unfortunately. So it's a bit of a, a mixed recommendation. Yeah, I, mean, I actually might prefer it to do it to Hellraiser 3 in some ways, but yeah, this would also mark the, the last movie in the series would be released theatrically. I believe it didn't even get a UK theatrical release, it was just a US one. I think it was a straight-to-video job here at the time. Which is quite disappointing for a movie that has its origins. Yeah, absolutely, yes. It's it's not great, is it? Well, regardless what happens at the end of Hellraiser Bloodline, it is set in the future, so we can just ignore anything still to come and set anything in between that time, which takes us to Hellraiser 5, also known as Hellraiser Inferno. All hell is about to break loose again. <laughs> And this time, the battle between good and evil has a familiar face. Welcome to hell. Hellraiser Inferno. No! Released in 2000, this went straight to DVD, as John was mentioning, the last one being the the last cinematic release. It found concerns a corrupt detective played by Craig Sheffer, who discovers Le Marchant's box, also known as Limit Configuration, at a crime scene. Being quite obsessed with puzzles himself, he takes it home and unfortunately opens it. It's then that his life starts going a bit upside down. He starts having hallucinations and it's difficult for him to tell what's real and what's not. He's having these really grotesque images of deformed people attacking them and as if it's a bit bad enough he's chasing down a killer known as the engineer who's suspected of kidnapping a child so you have this detective thriller happening amongst all the horror what's most notable about this movie is that it was the featured film debut of scott derrickson who we all know we go on to direct uh, better known films as the exorcism emily rose sinister and most famously doctor strange as I mentioned, this movie went straight to DVD, and unlike the previous four movies, was not based on an original Hellraiser script, but was instead a spec script that was reworked to include the mythology and the characters of the series. I have a soft spot for this movie. I don't, I don't think it's a bad movie. I think there's a lot to like about it. Uh, but John, you watched it for the first time. What was your thoughts? I really enjoyed it. I have a, a thing for detective 
stories anyway. I, I do enjoy them. And this kind of ticked all the boxes, even if it wasn't a, a Hellraiser film thriller element of it, was enough to carry it through for me. It was well put together. It was put together more like a mystery rather than a horror. There was obviously horror elements in it, like you say, the visions that he sees, some of the people he comes across. Yeah, it, it, it worked very well, and it, it just sort of shot by the whole film. I just I was, I was amazed that they decided to take such a turn away from the previous films and the, the focus on certain elements. I mean, in this film... Pinhead doesn't feature a whole lot. He's quite absent, and he's noticeably absent, which obviously raises a bit of tension throughout the film because you've kind of got an idea that at some point he will turn up because the whole franchise by this point is now based around this character. So keeps you going, done very well. It doesn't give you a lot of clues. It doesn't guide you to certain conclusions. So therefore, you're having to do a wee bit of thinking yourself. As I say, I was surprised, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'd leave all of that. And it's a strange irony when you mention uh, Pinhead hardly been in this film when mm-hmm. they hastily rewrote Bloodline to include more of them. Yes, that was a strange one, I must admit. Couldn't quite get why they would then go on to the fifth one and say, yeah, that's fine, just do what you want. <laughs> Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But what can you do? Yeah, and it, it was noticeable that it was a singular vision from a director as well. It wasn't a case of almost like editing by committee here. Scott Derrickson was obviously able to take this right from start to finish. And by all accounts, he was happy with the end product. So, And that does show because it is a more contained story and it's a more complete story than Bloodline and possibly even Hellraiser 3 as well. I was surprised that it was just a home video release i would have marked this as being something that would appeal to horror audiences on the big screen but you know you live and learn i suppose it's just probably it didn't gain any traction with executive dimension so home video it was unfortunately there was obviously a lot of elements in it with usual the puzzle box and as you've mentioned the the fact that he likes games and everything that was a kind of a follow-through line from bloodline as well there was a lot of that with the toy maker and various characters wanted to play games all the time whether it's actual games or it was obviously sexual games and things like that this was a lot more straightforward in terms of it was just the main everything focused on this main character and everything was seen from his point of view which i found very refreshing yeah i mean you can use the word refreshing there as a, as a fresh take on a movie now i've been the fifth in a franchise you could just go down the same route of let's just rehash what we've done before and mm-hmm. going with that now, it's interesting for a movie well at this point the less interest in seems to be the best thing for it because there's not as you said, there's not lots of no involvement but it looks a bit there's not a editing by committee Scott Derrickson is able to make the film that he wants to make. And what he's made here is almost like a film noir detective mystery of a horror element. Almost a, a film noir detective mystery that happens to be wrapped in a Hellraiser movie. But it was interesting that the serial killer in this film that Detective Thorne is after is called the Engineer. I don't know if you remember, John. But the engineer was a character in the first movie, although I don't think he's ever referred to it as such. I have a vague recollection of something 
remind me? The engineer in the first movie, if you remember when Kirsty wakes up in the hospital after she first flees the house and she opens the box for the first time, she takes a wee meander into hell when the, do- the, the wall opens and she's chased by a very poor special effects creature and you can see the dolly. <laughs> That character was actually called the engineer in the script. Ah, right, okay. So I did find it interesting that there was reference to the engineer here, but there was no actual link regarding it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I like this movie. I think there's some very interesting visuals from a, a horror point of view. You can tell the budget's really cheap. It, it, it looks cheap. It looks like it's made for TV. But because of the sleazy detective element to it, I think it actually works. I think it looks the part. Yep, totally. Yeah, I liked the way that a lot of it was lit as well. You had elements of him when he was moving from one room to another. Now, as you say, that may be real or it may be part of his imagination, but... There was certain colour coding as well. He would go into a child's room and it would all be this sort of green hue to everything. And yes, it, it was cheap, but it was very effective. It it worked for what it was trying to do. And can't really complain when you know a film does that. It would be a, bit, a wee bit churlish if you were to start moaning about production values if you still enjoy the film. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a bit harsh to criticise the movie for its low budget when I think they did excellent with the money they had, which wasn't a lot. I think they had about $2 million for mm-hmm. the movie, which when you think of the first movie being made for just, just, for just under a million and now we're the fifth entry of the franchise and 13 years later, you, you kind of work it out. You, you do the kind of math on it. It's not yeah, this money. But yeah, I think this is a... I don't want to say too much about it in terms of the plot because I think the twist is really clever. I really like the ending. Yeah, I like this movie. I think it's one that goes under the radar a lot, especially when I first heard of it. I was only ever aware of the first four heroes of movies. That's because that's all I had in DVD. And years ago, I googled Hellraiser and discovered there was not only a fifth one, but a sixth and a seventh and an eighth one <laughs> at that time. I can't believe it, but... Yeah, I remember buying this one, I think it was like HMB or something, and being pleasantly surprised by it. And I'm glad when I watched it again recently, and I still enjoyed it. I would recommend mm-hmm. this. Oh yeah, definitely recommend it. My sort of benchmark for a lot of these films is if you can watch it on its own, then it definitely works. And this is a film that you can watch on its own without any previous knowledge and still get an awful lot from it. Yeah, but highly recommend it. That's a very good point, actually. I'm glad you mentioned that because, yeah, although although this is going to appeal more to fans of the series, you've got like Pinhead's face plastered over the cover, despite the fact he's not really a major player. And at this time, you could watch this as a standalone movie. There's there's not really anything to tie it back to the, the previous movies, other than uh, being familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah, totally. Totally, yes. And so... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now I do know your thoughts on this one because you previously told me but with Hellraiser Inferno released in 2000 you only had to wait another two years before the next straight to DVD movie was released in the, the series this was indeed uh, Hellraiser 6 Hellraiser Hellseeker Welcome to the worst nightmare of all Reality. 
do you find more exhilarating? It's getting hot in here. The pleasure. It's perfect. I prefer pain. Well, what do you think? I hate the title of this. I think it's clumsy. Just throwing it out there just now. I don't like it. I'm not a fan. This was directed by Rip Botter and written by Carol B. Dupree and Tim Day. Like Inferno, this started off as a spec script that had nothing to do with the heroes of franchise and was rewritten to include the characters and the mythology. And quite interestingly this time, ties to the previous movies. Starring Dean Winters, but Ashley Lawrence also comes back as Custy Cotton. Now, Dean Winters plays Trevor, who survives a car accident and apparently killed his wife Custy, played by Ashley Lawrence obviously, when their car went flying off a bridge and crashed in the river. Trevor survives, but Custy is thought to be dead. Well, she's definitely, she's, she's missing, presumed dead. A month later, Trevor starts to get on with his life, he's recovering, but the cops are suspicious and think he's had something to do with her disappearance. They're just not too... They're a bit suspicious of him, they're just not too sure this guy's on the level. As Trevor tries to come to terms with what's happened, he starts to experience some really bizarre, vivid and grotesque hallucinations. And pretty much similar to the previous film, it starts to blur the lines between reality and what's not real. This is a very difficult movie to explain the plot because there's so many twists and turns and you know you know what I mean now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a movie that's just totally unthrilling and I like the last one, it's very much a kind of mystery. But less of a detective mystery this time, it's more of a murder mystery in terms of Custy is presumed dead, is Dean involved, what is his involvement, who are all these women that appears to, <laughs> appears to be having affairs with <laughs> that he can't remember, they keep appearing and... Where's Pinhead, again, who's taking a back seat while the kind of movie unfolds around them. Now, this is the second time I, I watched this film for the second time. I've had the rewatch. I hadn't watched it in years. I don't mind it too much. I think it's okay for what it is. But I know you have stronger feelings, John. Yes, I like the film to begin with. The whole scene with the car crash and into the water and all that worked very well. You could tell from, right from the start there was decent production values associated with it. There was a wee bit of money involved, so therefore it looked good. It had the same tie-in with the previous film in that it was a mystery, as you say, not a detective mystery this time. So all very well, but once you get into the whole hallucinations part of it, it, it got a bit muddled and it didn't really know what it wanted to do. It didn't seem to be telling a story particularly well. There was scenes jumping back and forward all over the place that just left me a wee bit bewildered, to be perfectly honest. I was getting kind of lost in parts of it. Now, I realised towards the end of the film there was a reason for that, but it kind of dragged you out of the film a wee bit when things were happening and you were going, wait, what's why what's going on here it wasn't done in a subtle enough way to keep your interest it was quite blatant that oh this is a change we're going to do this now and it wasn't particularly enjoyable for that reason which is a shame because during the the more horrific scenes in the film there was some really nice jump scares there was some false 
jump scares as well, which worked really well. They didn't overdo it. They didn't overplay these false jump scares, which a lot of films later on tended to do just to get a reaction from the audience. It was quite subtly done. I thought it was good in that respect, but then it just it basically fell off a cliff as far as I was concerned. By the end of it, it was just, you know, as I, as I thought at the time, too little pinhead, too much Trevor. Didn't work, I'm afraid. Dean Winters definitely gets his money's worth in this movie. Yes, quite. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's a bit of a mess from a, a plot point of view and the execution of it. And do you think it's a kind of case of the story they had was too ambitious for how they could tell it? You know, it's got, it's got this almost Jacob's Ladder element to it, but... Mm didn't know how to tell that story yes very much so it was pretty obvious that the writers had at least seen jacob's ladder before they sat down to pen this whether it was a direct influence or not but yes there was certain elements that seemed to cross over yeah it was a a strange one Again, as the the series goes on we find that the main selling point of the film is once again very much in the background. Now, Doug Bradley must be either he is absolutely delighted with this because he's getting headline billing and not having to do very much, or he's really frustrated. I don't know what it is. I, I, I don't quite get why he would stick with this franchise for so long, given the fact that he's so much in the background in pretty much all of this trilogy of films. It's not really involved at all. So it must have been quite disappointing for audiences at the time because they're expecting a certain thing, especially from the marketing of the films and from all the poster art and everything that you, you end up with a film that's a horror mystery or a detective mystery, but you don't get pretty much what you're looking for. No, and it's interesting. I remember when I was first finding out about these movies uh, in the early days of Google, there was a forum I was on. That's how long ago it was. Forums were still a thing. And <laughs> somebody was mentioning their, their pitch for it would have been the ninth hair was a movie at that point. And they were saying that it's about a little league team and how their coach's an alcoholic. And they basically described this movie that didn't sound horror on the slightest and went and pinhead the watch from the bleachers. And I laughed <laughs> because that's almost where the franchise was going. It was like, let's just make a movie and then at the end we'll throw Pinhead into it, call it Hellraiser, boom. And it's bizarre because it's almost like the studio have no idea what to do with this property, this property but are terrified to lose the rights of it, so just churn out movies. You pinhead in the first movie. He's not supposed to be the main character. It's not set around him. And he's not in the movie that much. He's not even called Pinhead. He's just, he's entitled, I think he's a lead centibite he's called. But the second movie, they realise he's the money winner. Let's start building the franchise around him. As we mentioned just five, ten minutes ago about Bloodline, let's have more Pinhead. And then they just go, let's have less Pinhead. It's like they're trying to not give the audience what they want here. To the point where the popular horror magazine Fangoria, they wanted to do a cover story on the movie and interviewed the director, Rick Botta. But the casting crew were under a gag order, which meant they couldn't promote the movie. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? It's, it's, really really, it's just really bizarre. It's I, I don't understand the logic to that at all. I just really don't get that. What did you think about Kirsty 
coming back into it. It's an obvious link to the first couple of films. Do you think it was well done or do you think it was just there to provide a link to this film? It was a gimmick. It was a gimmick, uh, let's be honest. She didn't need to be in it, although I felt she was wasted in the movie. I liked the t- I liked the way they wrote her into it at first, but she's barely in it as well. And there's one scene that I don't want to mention too much because it's a spoiler, but it really ties up to the first movie. And you're like, okay, that's pretty cool. And that makes sense. It, it, it kind of closes the door as well. It kind of answers some questions that I had regarding the series. But she's very underused. And it's almost, I don't know if Dean Winters was really popular at the time or if his pals with the Weinsteins or what. But I know he's the star of the movie, but he's, he's really got a lot of screen time. Yes, it didn't make a whole lot of sense that he was a great womaniser with all, the, with all of these mistresses. It didn't seem to come across anyway in his performance that he was this type of character. He was a, a wee bit bland in terms of how he was presented on screen. Now, I don't know if that was in the writing or a mixture of the writing and the actual acting, but it was wholly unconvincing as a, a, a lead performance. Which, given the amount of screen time he had, you really need a very, very strong character to carry the film, which it just did not do. No, and come back to Doug Bradley quickly, and you can mention that he's not in this movie quite a lot, but regardless of how the quality of these films have been, he remained a constant at this point. He just brings a gravitas and a, a, a majestic, he's got a majestic demeanour just commands your attention not just visually but his voice and how he carries himself mm-hmm. and even with the limited time he does have he's still you're still drawn to him when he's on the screen oh absolutely that, like i said before that's why a lot of people were there to see pinhead to be in his orbit again he by this point he knows the character inside out so therefore he's got the mannerisms down he, he doesn't need to go completely over the top like he did in Hellraiser 3. There's yeah. no need for that type of performance. He can just fall back on his previous characterizations, the way that he has developed this character. Yeah, he's the the highlight of the film by far, really is. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting, we kind of mentioned the fact that they cut more and more of Pinhead out of these movies. Uh, Doug Bradley actually edited and included a lot of his own lines in this movie, so there was actually supposed to be even lesser of Pinhead than there was. <laughs> I, 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 don't know what to, I don't know what Dimension just hates this franchise and wanted to punish it, but it's a very strange way to treat it. Yeah, like you say, I think it was just is a relatively cheap way to continue to have a hold on the franchise and if they punt these films out they know there is a core audience for them and they don't have any great expectations. If they make more money than they estimate, all being well, it doesn't mean that the next film is going to have an increased budget or a slightly different direction or anything. They're just going to keep doing what they're doing, which obviously I don't know because I haven't watched 7 through 10 yet. So I, I cannot wait till you do watch <laughs> But do you think it's safe to say this has been the weakest entry in the franchise so far? By far, yes. It was, I would go as far as to say it was a disappointment. Even though a lot of the films in the series have 
not been sort of top notch, superb films. They've been entertaining up to this point. This was the first one that kind of dipped below my very low threshold and didn't really work for me in any way. It's one that I wouldn't really recommend. It's one that you can quite easily skip as far as I'm concerned. You could. I would recommend it for the fact that Ashley Lawrence comes back, you've got to Cotton. It's a really cool scene. I do like mm-hmm. towards the end that ties some things up for me. And it's funny because both of us aren't the biggest fans of this movie, but it's actually Clive Barker's favourite sequel since Hellbound. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's also marks the last time he would have any involvement in any capacity with the franchise. Now, again, we keep I keep mentioning this idea that Dimension films hate, this, hate these movies. Because Rick Botta wanted to involve Clyde Barker, who the studio forbade from having any, any involvement whatsoever. I mean, I don't understand why. But the director said, uh, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want. And he showed Clyde Barker a working print of the movie. And Barker was quite complimentary of it, just add, just insisted he had some more grotesque imagery. And apparently, uh, we wrote it which became most of the third act mm-hmm. in that film. But, yeah, why would you... I mean, you've got, you've got an incredible mind like Clive Barker who's created this series and the studio's telling the director, don't involve him. And you've, got, you've got Doug Bradley, this legendary film actor at this point who's created an icon of horror and you're trying to minimise... <laughs> yes. ...his involvement. It's just bizarre. Yes, and then they wonder why it got a 0% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I think we've we've kind of sorted that one out for them, haven't we? Yes. So, um, I, I'm going to say recommend just based on the fact that yeah, you've watched five of them. You as well just going by six. Yes. Well, there there is that, but I think it is by far the worst that we have seen so far. So. Well, that's us now covered six heroes and movies over two specials. For those math geniuses out there, you'll realise there's four movies left. Now, we haven't actually discussed how we're going to cover this one, but based on the fact I've seen them, John, I think we could do a trilogy of specials. We could easily cover these next four mm-hmm. in one special. There is no need to focus a whole episode in any one of these movies. I don't want to influence. I don't want to influence your opinion of them any more than that. Cool. I am actually looking forward to watching them because it's been a few weeks since I've watched any of them, so it'd be nice to dive back in. But yes, I'd be more than happy to do another episode covering the the last for completism more than anything else. But yes, I'm looking forward to it, and hopefully our listeners are as well. I say listeners because I think we do have more than one now. Yeah, we've got at least two. Yep, well, there we go. That's not including my mum, <laughs> who doesn't listen, let's be honest. So I'm going to give a shout-out, speaking of listeners, I'm going to give a shout-out to my mate Richard, who is currently watching the sequels for the first time himself. He is a massive Hellraiser fan, like me, but he hasn't seen, he or he hadn't seen any of the movies after four. So he's been inspired by our podcast, he's been watching them. Does that make us influencers, then? I think it We've does. actually inspired somebody, yeah. Well, there we go. He has watched uh, the first eight, and we'll, we'll discuss that on the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Anything else, Michelle John, before we wrap up? No, that's 
pretty much everything. Obviously, we're we are available the usual social media channels. We're on YouTube. You can find us on uh, Spotify now as well. We put playlists together for the episodes. The episode that we did for the first Hellraiser trilogy, there's about an hour and a half's worth of music that has been compiled, which is quite nice as well. It's quite a nice wee accompaniment to the films that we talked about. And obviously you can get in touch with us at podcast at moviescramble.co.uk if there's anything you want to discuss with us or ideas that you think we could have a look at something maybe another horror franchise or whatever we are always open to suggestions if we don't like the idea then we'll just pretend we never saw it speaking of horror franchises more than one person has mentioned the wishmaster to me on twitter mm-hmm. yep and wishmaster is also now shown on netflix ah well bit late for that i've watched them all now so. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've watched one to four i have extensive notes and i think well i was pushing for that a wee while ago that we could possibly do the wishmaster series now that is a series of films that would be worthy of a discussion definitely if you out there in listener land are interested in a wishmaster special please let us know to be honest we will probably do it anyway but mm. it'd be nice if somebody listened to it as well <laughs> <laughs> Well, if that's all from you, John, that's all from me. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to our Hellraiser special, part two. We will return soon with the third part of our trilogy of Hellraiser movies. And if you can also check us out at moviescramble.co.uk, you will find all the movies reviewed extensively on there. Thanks very much, and goodbye.